This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is the number here. 974-TALK. So we got a lot more to get to on the program here this afternoon, uh, including uh, some further analysis of yet more encouraging news on the vaccine front. So that's coming up later on as well. More time for your phone calls and your texts. Off the top in this hour, though, conversation about, well, obviously a very important part of Canada's history. And in, in terms of the histories of businesses and companies, in a Canadian context, none are uh, perhaps as significant as that of the Hudson's Bay Company, which you know, very much mirrors the, the history of this country. And, and you can't really tell the story of Canada without the, the story of the Hudson's Bay Company. And it's interesting because obviously we, we all grew up and learned about the Hudson's Bay Company in, in school. Much has been written about the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, but our next guest has written a book that, that I think tells part of the story maybe that, uh, that a lot of us haven't known or heard before. And to talk as much about the people as the dates and and the other aspects of this history. Uh, The book is called The Company, The Rise and Fall of the Hudson's Bay Empire. Uh, Joining us on the line is the author, uh, Stephen R. Bound, joins us uh, here this afternoon. Stephen, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You know, as I say, it's a part of our history that we all think we know or or know certain parts of. But what convinced you, though, that that there was something new to be told about the Hudson's Bay Company? Oh, I've been thinking about this for many, many years. It's a, you know, as you alluded to in your intro, that the company is just such a massive, all-pervasive entity that, you know, existed, you know, for hundreds of years before Canada was officially made into a country. It's impossible to understand Um many of the issues that are plaguing society right now without, uh, you know, an appreciation of how the company was, you know, how it functioned in those, you know, diverse and dynamic economies that existed in basically all of Northern and Western North America. It was the dominating force for hundreds of years. And um, whenever I went, whenever I read about things that were written about, I had this, just a sense that, the full story wasn't being told and or that it was being misrepresented somehow or that it was a little bit off and um you know i think i think part of it is that people had taken an overly literal definition of what it meant to be you know a company employee and if you define that as being you know people who signed employment contracts in london and were shipped overseas and you exclusively tell the story those people, you're going to get a skewed idea of what the company was up to and how fully integrated it was into, you know, indigenous societies and cultures that existed in this country. And the whole economic 
system that predated the arrival of the company. And the reason the company was able to be so successful so quickly was that it tapped into pre-existing commercial networks and the river systems that were able to transport goods and, and ideas throughout northern North America. And, and um, yeah, so I just wanted to look at, I, I cast the net wider, wanted to get a more more broader view of what the entire economy was in a whole section of the world and therefore, you know, be able to more fully understand the role of the company within our history. And it's interesting because, you know, in 1670, you know, we think about the Hudson's Bay Company and, and how enormous it became, became, but I mean, this started off as a relatively small company, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was just a small handful of people. I mean, Actually, for much of its existence, its direct employees, overseas employees, barely numbered more than 500. Um, but, you know, that's taking that very, very narrow definition of it. You know, more than half the people that worked in it were either indigenous or people of mixed heritage. And the mix, mixed heritage is, is the key thing here. I mean, when the company first arrived across the ocean way back in the end of the 18th, 17th century, um, you know, how do you get from England back then? You, you get on this creaky old wooden sailing ship and you spend months at sea battling scurvy diseases and storms and ice in Hudson's Bay until finally you get to the coast. I mean, there's not a lot there. And so, you know, one of the first actions that they had to take was to learn local customs, learn local languages, and integrate them into themselves into pre-existing cultures. And, and of course, you know, only one ship a year could come across the ocean that whole time. So when they were there, they, they signed contracts for a minimum of seven years or perhaps longer. I mean, many of them stayed for many decades. So when they were there, they actually married into those societies and, and had children there. And, you know, that completely informed the company's business for all that time period. It's interesting, too, because, um, and, and you've alluded to it, right, just how important indigenous communities were in in the company growing. And I, from what I understand, and in past stories of, of Hudson's Bay Company have often focused on, you know, the, the people in London. But, you know, you focus in on, on some of those who were on the ground here and, and what eventually became Canada and, and how important they were. In, in making this company in, into what it was. Who, who are some of those individuals in those early days that we should really know more about? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's just, there are so many fantastic and amazing stories, you know, great adventure stories of from that time period. But um, one one classic story is, is, you know, the explorer Anthony Hende, who's considered to be, you know, one of, one of the leading explorers in Canada. And, you know, if you go on Wikipedia, there'll be a map showing where he went and everything. But, you know, very interesting person, wrote a great journal of his adventures. But Anthony Henday was actually a hitchhiker on to the expedition of a, a Cree merchant adventurer named Itikashish. And so when he set off on this two-year adventure, which was from Hudson's Bay, wending their way through the river systems all the way west to, you know, near the Rocky Mountains, west of Red Deer, and then back again, or, I mean... He was merely, a, he was just, he, he was a, a Tikashish's sidekick and not the other way around. And you get that sense from reading his journal closely. But we know the name Anthony Hende and we don't know the name of Tikashish. And yet both of those people led inter, intertwining adventures. And we should be aware of, of both of their adventures and how they were able to, well, it opened, you know, Reading that adventure it actually shows you the extent to which the entire inland trade 
of the Hudson's Bay Company was actually in the hands and controlled by, you know, generations of Cree merchant adventurers who were essentially using the Hudson's Bay outposts as wholesale distributing locations. You know, they with dozens, dozens of canoes loaded, or, you know, many dozens of canoes loaded with all the, the furs from the entire western part of the continent would, you know, descend upon the Hudson's Bay posts on the coast there and conduct trade and demand greater deals because of their volume of furs that they were doing. And then they would disperse and conduct their the retail level of the business throughout the remainder of the year. And, you know, this this whole dynamic economy is what had been missing before. And the lives of, you know, adventurers and explorers and travelers makes a lot more sense when appreciated, you know, when seen through those with slightly shifted perspective on what the world was like, you know. And I don't think anything can make very much sense unless you can get a more broader appreciation of the landscape and the people who lived there and the different cultures and the different politics that were going on. And, you know, just in, in certain other things that have been written, I, uh, you know, I always had this sense like there's that part of the story is missing. And I, that is the part of it. There's a whole bunch of people whose names were shuffled off to the sideline. And really, they deserve a much more prominent role in understanding the company's history and Canada's prehistory, too. The name George Simpson, and, and when we talk about what the Hudson's Bay Company became and, and sort of the height of its its power and scope, uh, you know, it, 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 it always comes back, and I guess it has to come back to George Simpson, who was, um, you know, well, he was a lot of things, obviously, he plays a, a large role in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, how significant is, is he, and how do we reconcile the more ugly parts of his own story? Yeah, I mean, George, George Simpson looms large as a, a villainous uh, villainous character. I mean, there are, there is one view of the company out there, like of this monolithic British monopoly that was kind of soul-crushing and manipulative and somewhat greedy, controlling everything. And that is the company as it existed under George Simpson. For 150 years before that, it had a much more fluid and open and dynamic corporate culture, which incorporated all kinds of ideas and people's, you know. But under George Simpson, it just became much more constricted and constrained, and he began himself. Like, he was placed in charge of of the company after it amalgamated with the, the Montreal-based Northwest Company in 1820. And by 1830, he was already... He was definitely racist. He was definitely misogynist. He was definitely abuser of all of his own employees, just to clear that up right away. And I don't throw those words out there very easily, but he absolutely was. Um, He began to encourage his own senior officers to get rid of their indigenous wives, um, sort of hinting to them that they were no longer going to be eligible for promotions if they continued to have indigenous uh, wives. And he began to restrict the promotion or the employment of the children of his own officers, you know, the mixed heritage children, because he didn't want them. He preferred to bring over um, well, people from either overseas or from the vicinity of Montreal, um, you know, basically white people. He would only keep indigenous or mixed heritage people in the lowest levels of employment. And he was able to, he was in charge for such a long period of time that these, um, these corrosive morally repugnant ideas to us now were 
disseminated throughout the company and he'd replaced the whole senior management system after several decades of being there with people who shared his point of view. And then, of course, when different settlers began arriving in the later 19th century and they looked to the only non-Indigenous cultural and economic institutions that existed throughout our area, which was the Hudson's Bay Company, that was the example that was before them. And so it set a really bad precedent. What's fascinating, I think, about this story, too, is that it's, you know, it's a history of a company. It's, it's also a history of a country and, and, and kind of where those two issues overlap. And you talk about it in the book that, you know, Canada as we know it might not have been possible or might not be the same Canada had it not been for the Hudson's Bay Company. How did the Hudson's Bay Company prevent a lot of what eventually became Canada from ending up in American hands? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I think it's indisputable that the com- the presence of the company is pretty much one of the only things that kept, well, basically Western Canada from becoming part of the U.S. It was the, well, the, the whole economic and social ties that they developed. And, um, you know, from Manitoba West, it also had a key role in determining the, the international border, like around British Columbia, but but also into Washington State and Oregon State and and Idaho and the United States. I mean, all of those southern areas used to be completely controlled by the company too. The only, the only um, non-indigenous presence was the Hudson's Bay Company outposts along the Columbia River and throughout the interior of those American states now. And so it was them who, well, their prior existence and their prior networks that they had established are really the only thing that allowed the United States not to be able to claim all of that territory all the way up to Alaska was that they were able to push the company out of a certain part of the region. The company moved its headquarters from, you know, Fort Vancouver, which isn't the city of Vancouver now. Fort Vancouver was along the Columbia River. Um, The company was forced to shift its headquarters a little bit north onto southern Vancouver Island, Fort Victoria. And, uh, you know, that... pushed the company and said, well, you can exist up there, but you're no longer allowed to have a monopoly in these land of the United States. But, you know, the company was able to resist the uh, encroachment of United States political interests entirely into its domain. And, and um, well, now we have British Columbia. I mean, the story is obviously a lot more complicated than that, but it's hard yeah. to explain such a short time. (laughs) There's there's a lot of history here for sure. Uh, The book is called The Company, The Rise and Fall of the Hudson's Bay Empire. It's available now. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here today. really appreciate this. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks. All the best. You take care. Uh, Stephen R. Bound is the uh, author of The Company, The Rise and Fall of the Hudson's Bay Empire, which is, it, it is quite an undertaking to try to tell this story, just given how much history you're, you're trying to cover here. Yeah, all of the individuals who, who loom large in this story, but I, I think certainly what Stephen brings to the service that really hasn't been talked about before uh, is just how important uh, so many of those indigenous communities and individuals and mixed race individuals at the time were in allowing the company to establish itself. And the, you know, the, the reign of George Simpson obviously is a big part of that story. And, and of course, there's the more recent story of, uh, you know, what the Hudson's Bay Company kind of morphed into, what it is now. It, it is quite remarkable that in 2020, we still have this company <laughs> that existed 
you know, back in the 1600s. And at least in a Canadian context, you'd be our best to find examples of that. So, yeah, it, it is it is quite a fascinating part of our history. And, um, you know, some you've read a lot about the, the Hudson's Bay Company, and, and perhaps a lot of you have. Uh, I think this will bring some, you know, some aspects of the story to the forefront that maybe we haven't uh, focused on before. Our number here, 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.